Matthew chapter 7. We are the final stretch of the Sermon on the Mount. So if you would stand with me, we're going to read God's word. So Jesus says to us, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, and do many mighty works in your name? Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. This is the reading of God's word. You may be seated. If you're joining us for the first time, um, <laughs> this is an interesting passage of scripture. And you're like, I was tricked. I knew I shouldn't have come to the church because this is what it's always all about, doom and gloom. Well, we're just coming to the end of Jesus's sermon. So if you are joining us for the first time, welcome. Um, and this is Jesus' most famous teaching known as the Sermon on the Mount. And contrary to what people think, and maybe you might be thinking now, after that passage of scripture, the sermon is actually not about how to get into the kingdom of God. Uh, the Bible makes it exceedingly clear that entrance to God's kingdom is only through God's grace. I think, and this is probably due to the church uh, swinging the pendulum, you know, from side to side over, you know, generation to generation, but I think that many of us have a wrong view of God. We have a, a picture of a God who is withholding. We have a picture of a God who uh, wants to punish evil, uh, like he, he delights in it. And some, uh, I would say, probably views of uh, hyper-Calvinism would paint God in that picture, that it glorifies God to pour out his wrath. And that's the idea that we get from the scripture. And so even if we hear about the love of God, the grace of God, the mercy of God, we're always like, yeah, but there's that wrath thing. There's that big baseball bat in the sky. And so maybe we're hearing grace and mercy and forgiveness and all these things, but we still have this picture of God. But if you read the Bible from cover to cover, you see that life is God's big idea. Flourishing, fullness of life is God's big ideal. God is the creator of everything good. And what we see in scripture is not a God who loves to inflict wrath, but a God who loves to show mercy and pursues sinners, rebels, broken people to the bitter end. That's what we see from Genesis to Revelation. And so when we come to the Sermon on the Mount, we have to read it within that light. And uh, you guys, most of you were here, but back in Matthew chapter 4, remember before Jesus even begins the sermon, he says, turn, because the kingdom of God is here. And he's inviting people to belong to the kingdom. He's offering people the kingdom of God, and they haven't done anything to deserve it. Simply turn, simply heard the call. And that's what the Bible shows us again and again, that entrance to God's kingdom is only through his grace. It's a gift that he offers us. He, it, Jesus said of the Father, it is the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. So how do we get into the kingdom of heaven? It is only by a gift of God's grace, only by his mercy that he offers us the kingdom. 
this sermon is also not teaching us how we stay in the kingdom of God. You know, kind of like this is the, the believer's marching orders, and if you fail in one of these, you're out. You know, and so this is kind of our church agreement sort of thing. You sign up for the Sermon on the Mount. If you break one of these, you're out of the club. The sermon is rather a description of the character and conduct of those who belong to God's kingdom. And, and the more and more I read the sermon, I think it is Jesus casting a vision of what it means to be his people what it means to belong to the kingdom of God, what it looks like when God's kingdom comes to town, what it looks like when the way of the world is flipped on its head and mercy and righteousness and peace and justice rule and reign in the lives of God's people. That's what this sermon is about. The sermon is not so much about do these things, but it's become this type of people, become this type of person. And Jesus is transforming his people, us, who hear this sermon, into a people who do righteousness and justice. They do the right thing because that's the kind of people that they have become. Now, this sermon has been used for centuries to shape and form the people of God into the way of Jesus. And we believe that that's what God is going to do with us as well. So we've come into the last section of Jesus' sermon. And I really appreciate what Matthew does here. I've taught many books of the Bible, many sermons. And and there's times where, you know, kind of finishing a book, I felt this need to recap. I've, I've felt this need to like, wait, it can't be over yet. Like, we have we really marinated in this? Have we really taken in everything and really thought through what this, you know, book of Galatians is trying to teach us, what First Peter is trying to teach us about being the community of God's people? So I really appreciate what Matthew does here. He gives us a moment to stop and really think through at a heart level all that Jesus has said and taught about what it means to be his people, what it means to be his followers, what it means to be kingdom people. And if you've been here, you know that that's what we've been trying to do these last few weeks, reflect upon our own lives in light of Jesus' teaching. And this has been the question, are we truly his followers? Now, Jesus gives us four different exhortations. Uh, Number one, to enter, or excuse me, to enter into the way of life that he has described in the sermon. He says to us, There are two paths, there are two trees, there are two kinds of people, there are two kinds of builders. And he exhorts us who have heard this sermon to be, to take the arduous path that leads to life. He's encouraged us to be healthy trees that bear good fruit, to be doers of his word and not just hearers, and to be wise builders that build our lives on his person and his teaching. And so this morning we're going to look at... uh, the third one of these. But before we do that, I just want to note one thing. If you haven't noticed before in this sermon, the authority of Jesus is something that really stands out. And we're going to see that kind of as we close uh, our sermon series in in two weeks. Uh, Verse 28, it says, And when Jesus finished these sayings, The crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not like the rest of the teachers in that day. 
And that's something that really stands out in the sermon, I think, as we go through. When Jesus teaches through the passages concerning the law of Moses, Jesus has the audacity to say, you've heard this, but I say to you. And so Jesus brings his authority on par with Moses, who is the great lawgiver of Israel. There's no one else like Moses. Even the Bible says this. There's nobody else like Moses. Nobody that God talked to face to face as he did Moses. And the people of God were told to look for another prophet like Moses. And so Jesus, he speaks with authority on par with Moses. Also here, right? He says that he is the one that grants entrance into the kingdom of heaven. Those are some bold words. Not everyone that says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom. Who does Jesus think he is? And lastly, verse 24, we'll look at this next week. Everyone who hears these words of mine will be considered a wise person. Now, Christians are often criticized for having too high and too exclusive a view of Jesus Christ. And I think it begs the question, where do we get this from? Why do Christians talk this way about Jesus? Well, we get it from Jesus. Jesus is the one that spoke this way. This is the way that he spoke of himself. And if we claim to be Jesus' people, Jesus' followers, then we would do well to heed the master's voice. We live in a time and an age where we are just overloaded with information. And sometimes it's really hard to decide which information we should assimilate, right? What do I keep? What do I get rid of? What's just noise? What's just static? I believe that the Spirit would say to us this morning, this is the noise to listen to. Listen to the voice of Jesus. More than any other voice, does he have the authority over our lives? When Jesus speaks, are his words that important to us? Are they that weighty to us that we take them to heart, that we let them marinate We let them go down deep into our lives. So this morning, we would do well to listen to his voice, his blessings and his warnings. We should take them to heart. So let's look at the teaching together. So Jesus, wrapping up the sermon, he says, okay, so listen, you've all heard about the day of judgment, that great day when God will restore, when God will settle all accounts, when he will make all things new. Let me tell you something. Not everyone that says to me on that day, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So, you might know this. To confess Jesus as Lord was considered a statement of faith in the early church. Now, Matthew, when he uh, comprised, when he brought together the teachings of Jesus, he does it in five different teaching sections. And many people believe that this was the doctrine of the early church. Five sections of teaching by the master, and that they would go through these. This would be like their small group curriculum, you know, and the church is working through these things and working them into their hearts. They're confessing, they're trusting, they're repenting, right? And so this was a common practice in the early church to enter into the community of faith. You would confess Jesus as Lord, that he's master. And the word there is the word kurios. And this was a word that the Romans would use for Caesar. The people of the Roman Empire, they pledged their allegiance. They pledged pledged their loyalty to Caesar. 
Caesar Curios, Lord Caesar. And so this is a very interesting thing. Matthew writing, you know, 30 to 40 years after these events in the time, the height of emperor worship in the Roman Empire, that they're talking about this is the great confession of faith, to give one's allegiance to Jesus and not to the powers that be, not to the emperor himself. And so this became a profession of faith, a statement of faith in the early church, to call Jesus Lord, to pledge one's allegiance to him, to claim him as master and king. And Jesus says, it's not enough. It's not enough. To simply pledge your allegiance to Jesus is not enough. Now, if you're like me, here's where you go. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Hmm, I wonder who that is. Which people aren't going to make it? Narrow is the way. Few there are that find it. And we want to speculate about, you know, who the chosen are of God, uh, who won't believe, can all believe, right? Can all be saved? And we want to talk soteriology and maybe Calvinism, Arminianism. We want to speculate about that stuff. That is not what this teaching is about. Jesus' dismal teaching, and it is dismal, is not supposed to get us speculating about how many people will enter the kingdom of God but is first and foremost a way to discern true fruit in our own lives and in the lives of the community that God has called us to. Remember what Nikolai was talking about last week. How do we know? How do we know? By fruit, that's how we know. And that takes time. That takes observation to know what is true fruit, what is bad fruit, what is a good tree, what is a bad tree. And so let's not do this thing where we take this teaching of Jesus and we apply it to someone else or some other church or some other community or group of people. This is so personal. I was reading a commentator, I think uh, Frederick Bruner is who it was, and he said it's almost as if Jesus has finished his teaching and he looks each of us in the eye and says, will you hear my voice? Will you listen to me? Think about at the end of the Gospel of John, and Peter's like, what about John? What's going to happen to him? I, I, I get what you're saying here. I'm going to be led away, be killed for the faith. I get that. What about John? What's going to happen to him? Tell me how he's going to be tortured. That'll make me feel better. And Jesus says, don't worry about it. I'm not talking to him. I'm talking to you. And I think that's exactly what Jesus is doing here or what he would say to us now. He's not talking to anybody else except for you this morning. The question is, will I enter the kingdom of heaven? Am I one of Jesus' people? Having listened to this sermon, having read through it, having worked through some of these huge teachings about character, about loving God from the heart, about loving our neighbor from the heart, it begs the question, am I one of Jesus' people? Am I a true follower? Am I doing the will of the Father? <laughs> maybe for some of us, it's like, what is the will of the Father, right? <laughs> you need to go maybe a step further. We'll come back to that question in a moment. Jesus gives an example of what he's talking about. What does that exactly look like? What do you mean not everybody who confesses Jesus as Lord will enter the kingdom of heaven? I thought that's what it was about. Well, Jesus says, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord. You can hear the pleading. Did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, 
I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Now, at first approach to this passage, I I was thinking in terms of mere profession and actual practice. But notice that the people in this scenario are doing good works. Seemingly very good ones. They, They say this, in your name, Jesus, we're with you. We did this because of you in your name. We prophesied. We denounced evil and proclaimed truth. Thus saith the Lord, right? Declared the word of the Lord. In your name, we cast out demons. We overthrew demonic powers. We cast down arguments and anything that would exalt itself against the knowledge of God in your name, Jesus. In Jesus' name, we healed people and did other signs showing that he alone has power and authority. In your name, in your name, in your name. Remember, we talked about this before, but in Scripture, when we have repetition, especially when we have it in threes, it signifies a finality to it. Like, Jesus absolutely were with you. In your name, in your name, in your name. Threefold profession. And yet Jesus says, I have never known you. There is no personal relationship affiliation or identity and then Jesus adds this if this isn't if that's not enough you work the opposite of me you are workers of lawlessness so stop for a minute right in what world is prophesying casting out demons and doing miracles equal to lawlessness you're like you know record stop hold the phone wait what what just happened here We've talked about this before throughout the sermon, but I guarantee that from an outsider's perspective, this life, we talked about this when we were looking at the paths that we take, right? The path does not look the way that Jesus describes it. It's not filled with like licentiousness and, you know, booze and lingerie, you know? It's not like Vegas. Like when you look at it from the outside, like, oh yeah, there it is. Obviously not the way of Jesus. It's actually very pious, It's very religious. It's very good. And I think that that's the same thing here. I think Jesus is basically saying the same thing again. From an outsider's perspective, this would not look like lawlessness, but actually looks very good, very pious, and very religious. So what is the difference? And Jesus, aren't you like being a bit extreme here? Aren't you majoring in the minors here? It's interesting. In Matthew 24, Jesus is talking about the end times, what we call eschatology. And he talks about just the state that the world will be in. And he says in that time, there will be lawlessness And he says, it will result in the love of many people growing cold. So in this time, there will be rebellion, lawlessness, the opposite of working of the kingdom of God. And the result will be the love of many growing cold. I think that what Jesus is hinting at here in Matthew 7, if we take these passages together, is that what he is referring to here about the will of the Father 
is an issue of mercy, is an issue of compassion, an issue of care for those who are in need. Scott McKnight says this, when Jesus uses fruit over against mighty charismatic gifts, prophecy, exorcism, and mighty works, he is getting at what matters most. Do you show love to your neighbors, to your enemies, and to those who happen to be on your path? Jesus is saying here, if you don't do the latter, he doesn't particularly care about your charismatic giftedness. Another way to say this is the charismatic gifts are no substitute for the righteousness of Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount. Remember Paul in 1 Corinthians 13, listen to what he says. He says, if I could speak all the languages of earth and of angels, but didn't love others, I would only be a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I had the gift of prophecy, and understood all of God's secret plans and possessed all knowledge, and if I had such faith that I could move mountains but didn't love others, I would be non-existent or my life would be meaningless. If I gave everything I have to the poor and even sacrificed my body, I could boast about it, but if I didn't love others, I would have gained nothing. Love is patient and kind, it is not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. It does not demand its own way. It is not irritable, and it keeps no record of being wronged. It does not rejoice about injustice, but rejoices whenever the truth wins. Love never gives up. It never loses faith. It is always hopeful and endures through every circumstance. Prophecy and speaking in unknown languages and special knowledge will become useless. It will end. But love will last forever. It's interesting that Jesus says all these things that they've done, he doesn't recognize them. They have no association or affiliation with him and they work the opposite of him. It, it is, I think, right in line with what Paul is saying here. If I do all these things but have not loved, I'm, my life is meaningless. It's almost as if I never lived. There is no purpose or point. There is no fruit to my life if I do not have love. And I've said this before from this pulpit, and I'll say it again. I think for many, many, many years, the Christian church has been focused on a fruit that is not the fruit of Scripture. We focus on the gifts of the Spirit rather than the fruit of the Spirit. We focus on the outward and, and conforming to uh, you know, a form of piety, a form of church practice, and we have left off the inner person. I told you guys about my experience growing up in the church that I struggled with sin. I struggled with uh, faith. I struggled with purpose. And, and so I would go and talk to my spiritual leaders, and they would tell me, well, you probably aren't saved. Like, I think I'm saved. I've asked to be saved lots of times. And so then you begin thinking, like, well, maybe God's withholding. Maybe I'm not saved by faith. Maybe it's not simple trust. 
Maybe there's more to that that needs to happen. And so you begin questioning and looking and doubting and all this. And so we go to other spiritual leaders and they say, your problem is that you don't speak in, the, you don't speak in tongues. So I get prayed for, I get shaken, I get rebuked, I get yelled at. This is not by my parents, by the way. My parents actually were pretty normal. <laughs> um, but I remember talking to a spiritual leader of mine, and he was praying for me to have the gift of tongues. And, and um, he'd be like, just pray what's in you, pray what's in you. And so I'm like, okay, 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 okay. And so then I just pray in English. And <laughs> he was like, not like that. Come on, you can do it. You know, it's like, like we're like, I'm playing football or something, you know, like, or like I'm working out. And it, was, and it was just this really, really frustrating thing. And so I left disillusioned. I think there was a time in my life where I just didn't believe in the charismatic gifts at all. And I still struggled with sin. And I read stories of like people like Louis Zamperini. Maybe you guys remember him. He was the movie Unbroken or the book Unbroken, if you're really, you know, you really want to know the, the facts. Louis Zamperini, though, you know, he's like uh, this amazing uh, Olympic athlete, and then he gets drafted, he goes to, to war, World War II, he gets put in a POW, he gets tortured, and finally war ends, he comes home, and his life's a total mess, he's an alcoholic, his marriage is falling apart, all this stuff's happening, his wife uh, comes to faith through Billy Graham Crusade, finally he goes to the Billy Graham Crusade, and it tells you how he went forward at this crusade. And literally, the book like ends there. It's like, he never smoked, drank, cursed, or ever did any of these things again. The end. <laughs> and you're like, there is something wrong with me. There's something wrong with me. And so I need this, I need this spiritual experience. I need to be put in a POW camp. You know, I need to go to the bottom so I can really, really realize how wretched and messed up I am, so I'll really cry out to God and actually mean it. This is, yeah, a little insight to my own life. And just, just the struggles there. And then I, I started looking at Scripture in a different light, in a, in a light of character formation. Character formation. And I don't discount testimonies like Louis Zamperini. I don't discount testimonies of people that went forward and, and their lives were, were never the same. I do not discount that. But I think for the rest of us, we will do that. have to do the hard work of putting to death our thoughts that are according to the way the rest of the culture thinks, our actions that are according to the, rest, the way the rest of the culture thinks, and our desires that are according to the, rest, the way the rest of the culture thinks. And we will have to put on new thoughts. We will have to practice new actions. And we will have to retrain our desires. And I think that that is what this sermon is all about. Jesus is training us to be the kind of people that do righteousness. Because that's the way they are. I love the way that N.T. Wright describes this chapter here, 1 Corinthians 13, he says, we're called to love one another. You see, the Corinthian church, they had a lot of good things going for them, but they lost the core, the key thing, which is to be like God. And what is God? John tells us God is love. And they forgot this character formation of the life of Jesus and the life of the Father. And so he says what Paul is doing is he's calling them back to this vision, this calling of the life of Jesus, love. And he says, love is the language that they speak in the courts of heaven. 
And we are called to learn that language today for what we will be when we get there. What, we, what will happen when God makes all things new, when heaven and earth come together, we will speak and practice and desire love. It will be the way of the kingdom. And so God is calling us to that now, and he is doing that especially in this sermon. What matters to God the Father, what matters to Jesus more than anything else is that we live lives of love and mercy, lives that have assimilated God's love, mercy, and forgiveness to us at the heart level. Remember, as we've been saying, the gospel begins with kindness. Description of God's character does not begin with incommunicable attributes, but begins in Exodus 34. I am the God of mercy and compassion. I am the God of steadfast love. I'm the God of grace. That's how God reveals himself to us. To do the will of the Father is to love at the heart level, is to become, I think, love as God is love. Now, that might sound like super hippy-dippy, but that's not how it's supposed to be taken. It is to practice the way of love until it becomes second nature. So I think the question is, so do good works matter? Do mighty works matter? Do the charismatic gifts matter? Yes, they do. When they are flowing from a heart that has been transformed, flowing from a life that has been transformed from the inside out. Uh, If you have a Bible or smartphone device, why don't you turn to Matthew 25. Matthew 25, 31 through 46. It says, When the Son of Man, that's Jesus, comes in his glory and all the angels with him. Again, this is that day of the Lord, the day when God settles all accounts, makes everything right. He will sit on his glorious throne and before him will be gathered all of the nations And he will separate people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. And then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Listen to this. And then the righteous will answer, when did we see you hungry? When did we feed you? Or when were you thirsty and we gave you a drink? When did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. It's fascinating to me, as I read through this passage, that the people on the right, the sheep, the people that are called to enter the kingdom of God, are totally unaware of their good works. 
What are you talking about? What are you talking about kindness that we showed to you, God? What are you talking about compassion? What are you talking about the time that we spent what we had for the sake of someone else? Justice, righteousness, what are you talking about? They are so unaware of their good works because they are second nature. They are a part of them, flowing out of them. It's just the kind of people they are. This is true evidence of the life of God in us. The will of the Father, I believe, is when we begin to look, act, and think the way God does by second nature. By practice, and then by habit, and then by character. That seems to be the process in Scripture. Practice, habit, then character. And I believe that this is what Jesus' sermon is supposed to do in us. So it's not just about profession of faith, but it is about assimilating the way of Jesus so that it becomes our way of being. Paul, the apostle in Corinthians, he talks about how we are constantly being given over to death so that the life of Jesus might be magnified through our mortal bodies. And I think it's what John the Baptist was also saying about us decreasing so that the life of Christ might increase in us. We're putting to death the desires of the world that we have been shaped by. We're putting away the priorities of the world and the culture that we have been shaped by. We're putting away the way of thinking that we have been shaped by in order that the life of Jesus might be made known through us, might be magnified through us, might be put on display for others to see. That's what this sermon is supposed to do in us. So I think some questions for reflection. Who am I really in my core? I make profession of faith, but who am I really? And I I believe for everybody in this room, the glass might be either half full or half empty. This is not like, do you have everything together? Are you ready to meet the maker? Right? This is not that kind of sermon. This is not like either you're doing all this or you're out. We talked about that. Every single one of us are in process. It is one of the hardest things in the whole world to reform our character. And that's why God gives us his Holy Spirit. That's why God gives us a community of believers to hold us accountable. That's why he gives us his word of truth to shape. That's why, that's why the gospel comes in and, and the spirit comes in and regenerates us, gives us new desires. Because this is the most difficult thing to do in the world. To turn the ship, to become a new creation. But is the glass half empty or is it half full? Are you working towards these things? Are you pursuing Jesus? Have you plateaued? Are you going backwards now? Who are you in your core? And I think a good, just a couple good ways to assess this would be, if if you're a parent, what do your kids say about you? Now, you might have had a terrible week, and I'm sorry that I'm giving you this sermon right now then. <laughs> Truly, I know what that feels like as a dad. But I think overarching, do your children see you as merciful, forgiving, 
gracious, and loving. Something that I've been doing with my kids recently is I've been um, asking them, okay, I want you to tell me honestly what, what you like about daddy. This isn't for my like, self-esteem or anything like that. But like what, like, what do you enjoy to do with dad? Like, what am I doing well? And then, and then tell me, like, what I need to work on. And Hudson, it's really funny. He's like, well, I could really use a pizza. And I'm like, <laughs> okay. Right. Let me explain a little better what I mean. And, uh, and even when I do, he's still kind of like, yeah. So we're working on our communication. Um, but a, a couple weeks ago, in all honesty, I had a, I had a really, I, I was very impatient with Hudson. And, and I was just, it was just one time after another, just getting really frustrated. And, um, and I, then that weekend, Judah and I were driving together, and I asked him this question. How am I doing? Like, you know, what's the good that I'm doing? What's the bad that I'm doing? Where I need to work on. And he said, you need to be more patient with Hudson. <laughs> I was like, ugh. Like, I knew it. I knew that. I knew that, but when your child makes that observation of you, you're just like, okay, yes, Lord, like, that's what I need, and, and this is, like, vulnerable stuff. I haven't moved on to grace yet, like, I'm not ready for that. Um, I'm just kidding. That's the next question, but how, like, how about your spouse? Are you open to asking your spouse, how am I doing? How am I doing as a husband? Uh, do I, am I showing you love? When you mess up, am I merciful? Am I gracious? Am I kind? What's my character like? Where, where am I failing? What, what do I need to work on? And this is, this is tough stuff, right, to, to hear, to work through. Are we open to correction and critique? Maybe that's a, even a place to start for some of us. Or how about your coworkers, your roommates? What would they say about you? Do they see the character and will of the Father in you? Do they see you as someone that is more concerned about doing the right thing rather than being merciful, compassionate, patient, and kind with people? Because that's really what God cares about. And God wants to see, of course he wants to see righteousness, a righteous life. But that flows from a heart that has been touched by his grace. That's the picture in scripture always. It's, it's fruit that flows out of a rooted tree, right? A rooted tree that is by rivers of water and producing fruit. It's grounded in, in the life and character of God. So do people see the love of God in us? This really is the question of the Sermon on the Mount. And then if not, why? And I think this always brings us back to the gospel. How has God treated you? Has God treated you with wrath, with anger, with unforgiveness? Did God repay you for your sins? Of course not. Then why are you acting like that with others? Why are you withholding? Why are you ungracious? Why are you impatient? What has Jesus done for your soul? Humbled himself for you? Spent 
his glory and his riches at your expense to purchase you, paid your debt of sin by suffering the death of the cross so that you could have his blessing and his place with the Father. This is how God has treated us with love, mercy, and forgiveness. We talk about this often at Refuge, but this is why the gospel is essential. And this is why Sunday morning isn't enough. This is why simple Bible reading isn't enough or a small group isn't enough. You have to stir up the gospel in your own heart. What has God done for your soul? Think about the mercy and kindness of God that was a response to your rebellion to your ignorance, to your selfishness, to your pride. Think about how God has treated you in Christ. This is to be the practice of God's people. Then we will not be people who live as though the gospel never happened. We will be people that live in response to the gospel and the grace of God. Now, it would be such a miss to pass Jesus' sermon up without allowing it to search our hearts without it really shaping and changing the inner person. Jesus wants to transform us from the inside out to bring us into his way of being. As I said, first practice, then habit, then character. To become his people who love sincerely from the heart, who do righteousness and the right thing because that's the kind of people they are. To follow Jesus at this heart level is to enter the true flourishing that he has laid out in the Sermon on the Mount. And as we've talked about throughout the sermon, you guys, this is what the culture needs. We live at such a toxic time. There is so much ungraciousness going on. There might be truth, but the tone is all wrong. The culture around us needs a people, I've said this before, who are winsome, kind, and empathetic. And that only comes from the gospel pressing in upon your heart. Reminding yourselves again and again of what God in Christ has done for you. People around us, they need the kingdom of God in the practice and manifestation of everyday life and circumstances. And yet, it's simultaneously what you need to live the flourishing life that God calls you to, to be trained in true human wholeness and godliness. So let's close in prayer, and I would just like you to, to pray with me. Let's, um, I don't normally do this, but let's close our eyes. Let's focus for a moment here. Father and Lord Jesus, Lord, we ask this morning for forgiveness for the times that we have given mere mental assent to your lordship over our lives. Lord, we confess that we have failed to practice that lordship in loving and serving others 
and the way that you have loved and served us. Lord, we want to change, but we need help. And we thank you, Lord. Your word tells us that you have sent help in the person of the Holy Spirit. And so we ask, Holy Spirit, that as we go from here, that you would abide with us, that you would move upon our hearts, Lord, that when we are out of line with the way of Jesus, that you would convict us and that we would repent then. Lord, that we would confess before our children, before our spouse, before our coworkers, I'm sorry that I said or did. That is not who I am, who I want to be. That is not in line with the way of Jesus. Lord, we pray that we would put off practicing the way the world practices life, and we would practice your way of living, your way of being. Holy Spirit, give us greater desire to desire good things, to desire the life and the way of Jesus. And help us believe and trust that there is power in obedience. When we confess, when we turn, when we repent, there is power there. There's new possibilities, there's new life. Lord, you are the God that makes all things new. So, Lord, change and transform us. And, Lord, use us in this city. Pray that you would magnify the name of Jesus and that people would know the kindness and graciousness of God our Father. And so they can turn And they can accept and belong to the kingdom of God as well. We pray this in your name. Amen.